that was almost a good throw there. So, um, so take that, use it, and, you know, there you go. The other thing is tonight, really, our gathering for the worship tonight is about kicking off this season. As you uh, saw, we kind of kept it mellow, low-key this morning. We're pulling out all the stops. We're going, like, full-on, full you know, hands raised, you know, and, and getting into Jesus tonight. So it's going to be an amazing, amazing time. And I would invite you to come, have dinner with us, and have an extended time of worship, and bring a friend. I think it's going to be that good. Today we are wrapping up our Jonah series. Uh, and here's the interesting thing as we now move into our final chapter, the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. One commentator put it this way. They said that if the story had ended at any point up until now, Jonah makes a lot more sense. Jonah actually makes a lot more sense if it ends any point up until now. If we just had chapter one, you would have this incredible story of rebellion. God's word comes to his prophet Jonah. God says go, and Jonah says no. Oh man, love my people here. So God says go, Jonah says no. He goes in the other direction. God says, not that easy, Jonah. He goes after him. He sends a storm. The storm rocks the boat. Jonah is in such kind of this soul numbness for even caring about his own life, let alone the lives of the sailors. He's asleep on the boat. They wake him up. They ask him to pray. He still doesn't even pray. I mean, that's how, like, far gone this guy is. They cast lots. God uses that to point out that the problem is with Jonah. Jonah says, you know, you kind of, you got me. Just throw me overboard. If you remember in the story, the, the sailors don't even do that just yet. They work all the harder to try and get the boat back to shore, but they kindly realize God is in this. God is doing something. And so they pray, they throw him overboard, and then the story's amazing. It, it, it actually says that they are the ones who come to faith, that they gave their, they made confessions, they made a commitment to God and prayed to him, and Jonah is thrown overboard. If it ended there, you'd have this great story of kind of rebellion, right, and its consequences, and that's, that's a pretty good story. You can kind of make sense of that story, like don't run from God, don't turn from him and actively disobey. But then we get chapter 2. Chapter 2 is awesome because then chapter 2 would turn us to a story of repentance. Jonah goes overboard, but then he gets swallowed by a fish. Crazy, I know, but incredible. He gets swallowed by a fish. He's in the belly of this beast for three days and three nights. And finally, he doesn't just sort of, you know, like say whatever. He kind of gives in to God and he confesses to God, God, you've been with me all along. You are in this. And then that great central theme verse of Jonah, salvation belongs to or salvation comes from the Lord. And we reminded ourselves that our salvation comes from the Lord. It is the work of the Lord. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. We worship from our salvation. We give from our salvation. We go from our salvation. It all flows from the salvation that comes from the Lord. And lo and behold, the whale spits Jonah up or vomits Jonah up onto dry land. Every kid's favorite Bible verse right there. So you'd have this incredible story of repentance. But then it actually gets even better, right? Chapter 3 becomes this amazing chapter where the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Ah, God gives second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Uh, who knows how many chances? God is gracious and good and comes to Jonah again. Jonah goes and preaches, albeit not the best sermon ever. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Doesn't give much grace right there, but 
God uses it. And the people of Nineveh repent. And they declare a fast themselves. And they begin to pray to God. And, and, and I love that line still. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe God will not treat us as we've treated others. Maybe God will be gracious and compassionate to us. And it works. So if you have chapter 3 here, then the story ends on this revival. 120,000 people surrender to God and an entire city is saved. Great story. But the story doesn't end there. We have this fourth chapter. And friends, this fourth chapter has confounded, <laughs> confused, frustrated scholars for centuries now. I mean, rabbis, priests, and pastors have struggled with how do we preach this chapter that defies all categories of literature as we know it. And that is kind of the point, to shake us, to awaken us, to call us to attention that God is doing something even more than a story of rebellion. He's doing something even more than a story of, re of uh, repenting, of redemption, doing even more than this story of revival. He is yet going to do something even deeper in and through Jonah. So let's turn to this fourth chapter now. I'm going to read it out for us. Don't wait for the explanation. Remember, friends, this isn't where you check out. This is where you check in to God's Word. Hear this incredible fourth chapter in its fullness. Let me actually give you 310 so you can kind of get the revival. When God saw what they, had, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways... He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm that chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. <laughs> Temper tantrum. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? End of story. <laughs> Shocking. Abrupt. Confusing, even. 
The crazy thing about this story is that it worked. It worked. It worked because the people repented, and God relented. But then the twist is that Jonah then, anybody, anybody guess what the preacher has in mind here? You're going to preach the next sermon, right there. All right, there's our next preacher. You know how it works. The, the people repented, God relented, but then here's the twist. Jonah then resented God for all of this. He resented God's grace, his compassion, his mercy. The people repented, God relented, and then we see the true state of Jonah's heart. His true character becomes revealed in this, in his resentment towards God and showing his true self. Let's just recap the story. Jonah was angry at God. He was angry at God, and when we started the story, remember, Jonah gets this call to go to Nineveh, and we said that there was good reason for him to maybe be afraid or to run from this call. The people of Nineveh, Nineveh were the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were the enemies of God, and we even have descriptions from other prophets calling the city of Nineveh the city of blood. They were so murderous, they were so awful, that it just becomes known as the city of blood, and so we kind of gave Jonah a, a bit of an, an, an easement, a bit of an allowance. You know, maybe it makes sense that he would run, but that was kind of misleading, wasn't, wasn't it? It wasn't because he was afraid for his own life. It wasn't he was afraid for what might happen to him if he'd end up like one of these people that maybe he knew were killed by the Assyrians. It's that he knew the character of God, and that in the very act of God calling Jonah to go and preach repentance to the city of Nineveh, that God was on the edge of offering it to them, of offering them. And, and he says this, in so many words he says this, here's the interesting thing, that Jonah now goes to, it's kind of the John 3.16 actually of the Old Testament, Whenever the people of God are coming out of their captivity, their slavery in Egypt, Moses leads them out into the desert, and then they're at the mountain, and then God says, you know, I've delivered you, I'm your God, you're my people, I'm going to teach you now how to live, and so he gives the commands, and remember, these, the commands always come to God's people, they show us how to live in relationship and love as the people of God and as the community of faith, these aren't like the requirements for stepping into God's love, this is how we express God's love. And, and yet they rebel, but then Moses, we don't retell that whole story, but Moses ends up on the mountain, right? He ends up on the mountain, he's got these two tablets, and God's going to give his word to them, and God reveals himself. And when he does, this is what he says, I, the Lord of God, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, faithful generation to generation. And here Jonah uses God's own words against God. God, I knew you were gracious. Oh, imagine that. God, I knew you were compassionate. Oh, oh my. <laughs> Can you believe that? God, I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in love. He didn't want the people to have the opportunity to have this chance to actually repent. And so the story then takes sort of this turn. It takes this twist that he, he actually then goes out, and I'm going to kind of set it up here for you, so you, you know, kind of get into the zone here. He goes outside of the city, and he kind of sets up a little camp here. So I brought my little, you know, going to the, going, get the visual here going. He sets up this little camp. He's outside of the city. He, uh, this is one of the weirdest umbrellas. It works reverse. Ooh, look at that. There's my umbrella there, you know, and, and he kind of sits down, 
and, and, and he creates this little sh shade there, and he's like, okay, maybe there's going to be fireworks. That's, that's really what he wants. He's like, maybe, maybe God's literally going to send down hellfire. Maybe the destruction that I've longed for will actually come. And then the story gets even weirder. <laughs> God has compassion. Oh, the, oh, there we go. God actually has more compassion. He sees Jonah sitting there in the scorching sun, in this pitiful little shelter that he's made. And it says that he sends Jonah a vine, a gourd in the old translations. And Jonah was very happy about the gourd, very happy about this vine. First time we read about Jonah being happy. Is he happy that God called him? Nope, he runs in the other direction. Is he happy that God saved him? Nope, God just spits him up on the dry land. Is he happy that God has had mercy on a city of 120,000 people who turned back to God? Not happy at all. He's happy about a plant. <laughs> He's happy about a gourd. But then the worm comes. Finally, friends, 25 years ago, I took an etymology class, and I discovered this thing actually exists. The squash vine boar. Isn't it disgusting? That's a, so I just thought I would gross you all out with this gross little larva. So there it is. I remember studying this in class and be like, hey, the Jonah story. That's it. God sends this gross little worm, and it starts climbing up the center vine of the squash or the gourd, and it withers and it dies. God even then sends this scorching east wind, and it's beating down. It says Jonah becomes faint, and all the more he wanted to die. And then God makes this final statement. As this father having compassion on this child, literally throwing this kind of temper tantrum, he says, you're upset about the plant. You did nothing about the plant. You didn't plant the plant. You didn't grow the plant. You didn't tend the plant. I gave you the plant, and I took the plant away, and you're mad about the plant. And you could care less about 120,000 people. And don't forget about the cows, Jonah. I don't know what it is, but this is like my favorite part. Think about the cows, Jonah. So many cows, and you don't care. This is supposed to shock us, awaken us, cause us to think. So what do we think about the story? What do we make of the story? How do we begin to put together this fourth chapter that defies, in so many ways, all literature categories? Well, Tim Keller has a book that helped me come to an understanding of it, and he simply titled it The Prodigal Prophet. And he points out the parallels between the story of Jonah in the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 about a father with two sons. In that story, often called the story of the prodigal son, a father has two sons, a younger and an older. That's usually how it works. And the younger one comes to the father and essentially says, I wish you were dead. You'd be better off to me dead than alive. I would love if I just had my inheritance. Can you just pretend like you're dead and give me my part of the estate. Shockingly, surprisingly, in that story, the father agrees. He gives the younger son all that would be due him, and the son, as we might expect, takes the money and runs. He goes in the other direction, off to a foreign land, 
wastes it on wine and women, and ends up in a pig pen. And we should be, again, shocked, surprised, called to attention by this story, because this is about as far as you can go from God as a good Jewish boy. You've wished your father dead, you've left the country, you've wasted all of your assets, and now you're literally longing to eat pig slop, unclean, unkosher. This is as far as you can possibly get from God and still have breath in your lungs. And yet at that moment, he comes to his senses, and he turns, and he starts to make a journey back to his father's house. He's preparing a speech, if you remember that story. Uh, I'm not even worthy to be a son anymore. Maybe my father will have compassion. Maybe I could just live like a servant uh, on the estate. At least then I've had food in my belly. When the father sees the son returning, he leaves his house, comes down the path, embraces the son, puts his robe around him, puts the signet ring back on his hand, puts sandals on his feet, and calls for a celebration. In the meantime, the older brother is out doing his chores. And when he approaches the home, he realizes a celebration is happening. And he asks one of the servants what is going on. And the servant tells the older brother, your younger brother has come back. He who was dead is now alive again. And your father is having a party. And he won't go in. And again, we see the father leaves the house and goes down the path to meet his older son. The older son complains, I've been here faithfully obeying you, and you never even gave me a goat. Think about the goats, older brother. The father says, oh, all I've had has always been yours. And you're with me all the time. But this brother of yours, who is gone, is back. He was as good as dead, and he's alive again. Uh, we have to have a celebration for this life that has been saved. And the story ends. And we don't know what the older brother does, just as we don't know what becomes of Jonah. The story of Jonah is like the story of the father with two sons, except Jonah kind of plays both roles for us. In the first two chapters, Jonah is the younger son. He takes the money and runs. He takes all of his assets and he uses them to get as far away from God as he thinks he can possibly go. And yet, lo and behold, in the pit of despair, God is yet there and God brings him back. And the word comes to him again. And he appears to faithfully obey. But there we see that Jonah in the second part is also playing the role of the older brother. The one who is obedient, but really only going through the motions of obedience, doing the least possible, doing the minimum bit that is required, and doing it all along with a hard and a stubborn heart. And both stories end, these cliffhangers, but the ending of these stories invite all of us to see the younger brother in us, the older brother in us, the Jonah in each and every one of us. What do we make of these stories. What do we make of Jonah? Let me just offer three things, because that's what preachers always do, and you can reflect upon them. There's more. But three things strike me about this as we come to the conclusion now of Jonah. The first is simply pay attention to your anger and pay attention to your despair. Pay attention to your anger and pay attention to your despair. 
Your anger is going to reveal your heart condition. What are the things that get you angry? What are the things that get your blood boiling? What are the things that work you up? It has been said, of course, that our heart should be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And yet we discover in the story is that what God says is amazing, Jonah says is awful. He is actually angry at what God thinks is amazing. He is actually upset that God is, in fact, who God said he is and said who he would be, slow to anger, abounding in love, full of grace, full of compassion. And Jonah doesn't like this. You see, Jonah doesn't like that God has treated those whom Jonah perceived to be his enemies the way God has treated him. See, Jonah Jonah's saying, why don't you treat my enemies the way I want to treat them, with vengeance? And meanwhile, of course, God is saying, oh, Jonah, don't you realize you're all my enemies? <laughs> all people have acted as my enemies. All people have forsaken me. All people have walked away from me. All people have treated other image bearers atrociously. All people have treated my sons and my daughters with lies, with deceit, with deception, with even worse things that we could list off. You have all acted as my enemies, and yet I've had grace and compassion and mercy on you. Why would I not have grace and compassion and mercy on any enemy of mine who turns and begins coming back to me? We need to watch where our anger flows, because that is going to reveal the true condition of our heart in so many ways. Do we get angry about the things that God gets angry about? Or do we get angry about the things that God actually rejoices in? Our anger reveals our heart condition. I think this is an especially pertinent message and part of Jonah for those of us perhaps who have grown up in the church, growing up in faith. People come to faith in many wonderful ways. Maybe we were born into a household of faith. We are raised in the faith. We are raised going to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and church every time the doors are open. Maybe we have a rebellion and we come back to faith. Maybe we come to faith later in life. But for those of us that grow up in the church, sometimes we can have the right theology. We can have all the right ideas about God, but we can have a very sick heart like the older brother did. And like Jonah did. Jonah just has a sick heart. He has the right theology. Is God compassionate? Yes or no? He affirms, God, I knew this. Is he full of grace? Is he slow to anger? Is he abounding in love? Does he want to relent from sending calamity? Absolutely. Jonah knows this. Jonah affirms this. And yet his heart reveals how angry he is about this. Let's go a little bit deeper so we understand where this anger comes from. The other thing to pay attention to is despair. He is angry to the point of despair. His anger against God has caused a self-loathing to the point where he doesn't want to go on anymore. Again, I'm only going to call attention to say, anybody who is in that pit of despair, please, Call out to the God of mercy and grace and love and call out to a brother, a sister, a friend in Christ who might take your hand and help you walk through that despair. 
That said, where does this anger, where does this despair come from? Jonah, as we've alluded to before, has become a racist, a nationalist, a racist, a very religious person. Where does this racism come from? There's a lot of things we could say about racism. I heard it put once this way, and this has always been a very helpful kind of paradigm to think about where the origins of racism uh, or elitism of classism come from. This doesn't cover it all, but you might be able to remember this, and then it's helpful for what we can actually remember and put into practice, right? So racism will start to creep into our lives when hurt turns to hate. Hurt turns to hate. We all get hurt. Who here hasn't ever been hurt? No hands are going up. We all get hurt in life. To walk through this life is to walk through some pain, some brokenness, some broken relationships. People stab us in the back. Friends betray us. People let us down. We lose jobs. Our health... We get hurt in this fallen world. Amen. No, nobody says amen to things like that, but amen, it's true. Sometimes our hurt then turns to hate. Jonah is allowed his hurt to hate. He probably knew people killed by the Assyrians, people of Nineveh. They had attacked the people of God on three separate occasions. Chances are, during one of those attacks, Jonah lost somebody he loved. He lost somebody close to him. He was hurt, and now he hates Go to the very people who caused me my pain. God, I just don't think I can do that. Sometimes our hurt turns to hate, and that begins us down a path of racism. Uh, sometimes our preferences just become our prejudices, right? Sometimes we just prefer things so much that they become prejudice of us. Well, we eat this way. Everybody should eat with this way. We, we, we dress this way. Everybody should dress this way. We, oh, here's the big one. We worship this way. Everybody should worship this way. Everybody should just take my preferences. But is the point of God, is the point of Jesus, the point of our lives that people should enjoy our preferences? No, the, the point is that we should all prefer Jesus. <laughs> We're not to turn people towards our preferences. We're to point people towards Jesus. And we should all prefer Jesus. The wonderful conclusion of the matter is that in the end, we see people from every tribe and nation and tongue and race streaming towards the mountain of God. Their differences are still there, but everybody now prefers Jesus over anything and everything and all other things. Jesus becomes King and Lord. Sometimes, though, our preferences turn to prejudices. And then other times, we turn the things we idolize into demons. Jonathan Edwards unpacks that in a bit of uh, his, his writings. He says, the flip side of idolizing something is to demonize all others. Jesus put it this way, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other inevitably. Those things that we idolize, we then demonize all others. We see this happening clearly in the current political rhetoric of our age. We think it's the worst it's ever been. I don't know, this is the only time I've ever been, but it certainly seems pretty bad right now that we can't just stand for something, we seem to stand against all other things. It, we idolize one party, we idolize one thought, we idolize one group, we idolize one nation, we idolize one class, and then we begin to demonize all the others. 
So sometimes our hurt turns to hate, our preferences turn to our prejudices, the things we idolize cause us to demonize all others. And we find that this is clearly where Jonah has ended up. And what this lands on then is that Jonah cannot bear the thought of God's grace extending towards those he considers his enemies. Here, here's, here's really what the rub is. This is the coming together, the confrontation of law versus grace, or truth versus grace. Jonah wants grace for himself and law for everybody else. Grace for him, law for everyone else. Grace for him, oh, but law for all those others. And sometimes we end up in that place. Jesus, however, came to combat this. In the Gospel of John, we read that when Jesus was born and came into his ministry, he came full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He wasn't part grace and part truth. He didn't lean into grace on this occasion and then lean into truth on that occasion. Jesus came full of the fullness of at all times and always, always full of grace and truth, perfectly wedding the two. But Jonah here is saying, grace for me truth for them. Grace for me, the law for them. We see people beating up other people with this all of the time. We see this in marriages often. We see this in parenting often. We see this in church communities, sadly. Grace for us, law for you. Grace for me, truth for them. And we beat people up with the truth. Were the people of Assyria evil? That is the truth they were. But just as true as it is that they were evil, so all the more that the grace of God could be extended to them. Not grace for me, truth for you. In this occasion, the truth of God is that grace can be extended to everyone. Deep stuff, right? Deep stuff. But this is what is being revealed to us in the story of Jonah. The rest of the story. So Jonah declares to God that he is, you know, the people have repented, but he sort of holds on to this hope. Maybe, just maybe, it didn't really stick. <laughs> maybe it was just the veneer of religion going through the motions, and God will see their true hearts. And so we see this little scenario unfold where Jonah goes outside of the city. He sits up on the hill. He sets up his little camp. He builds his little shelter. And God begins meeting him in this tantrum. Isn't it good throughout the story how God keeps coming back to Jonah? I mean, if we as parents, like if, you, if like your kid had like one tamper tantrum, like one bad moment, one fall, and you're like, I'm done. I mean, I mean, like we wouldn't have any kids, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, God keeps coming back to Jonah. Every parent is like, yes, kids are like, not me, you know? Um, he keeps coming. You know, Jonah says, I, you know, I want to die. And, and God is, you know, God's like, really? My wife had this great observation. Like, God's like pulling the Dr. Phil in this situation. You know, Dr. Phil's like, how's that working out for you? So, Jonah, you're sitting outside of the city in the scorching, hun, want, uh, so the scorching sun, wanting to die, wanting me to bring destruction, destruction and hellfire on the city. of How's that working out for you? And Jonah's like, it's awful. I want to die, <laughs> you know? So God's like, I'll give you a vine. He's like, I'm so happy now. I could care less about everything else. I'm so happy about the plant. This is, 
there's humor. I mean, we're just supposed to be struck by how insane <laughs> this is. He sends the worm, the vine dies, a scorching wind comes. He's like, oh, I want to die again. This is so awful. And then comes this matter. He says, you know, Jonah, it really it comes down to this. You care more about this plant. You care more about your comfort. You care more about yourself than you care about 120,000 people and so many cows. I just don't know what to make of the cows. I'm going to keep saying that until it makes sense to me. And so many cows, Jonah. Think of the cows. And it ends. The Jewish people have a tradition in their celebration of Yom Kippur. The celebration of Yom Kippur is Yom, the day Kippur atonement. It is about the day of atonement, the day of atoning for one's sin so that one may be brought back into a relationship with God. With God. During the celebration of Yom Kippur, happening September 27th, this coming year, there's a tradition. There's morning prayers, there's afternoon prayers, and there's evening prayers. And during the course of the middle prayers in this celebration of Yom Kippur, they read the entire book of Jonah. And at the end, everybody says in unison, I am Jonah. Will you say that with me? I am Jonah. The point of this abrupt ending is to send an arrow at Jonah and for us to look at his heart, but is also send an arrow into our hearts and to cause us to look at ourselves and realize how many ways, how many times have I behaved as Jonah? I, in fact, am like Jonah. But the story of Yom Kippur actually points us to the greater redemption that came in the Passover. And during the celebration of the Passover, two very interesting things happen. In one course in the preparation for their atonement that comes through Passover, the people of God will gather together a scapegoat. And they'll take the scapegoat and they'll confess all of their sins on the scapegoat. The priests will stand there and put their hands on the goat. The people kind of raise their hand. And they'll all start to, in unison, kind of confess their sins. I've lied. I've cheated. I've been greedy. I've been prideful. I've been even worse things. And they confess their sins. And the sin goes on to that goat. And guess what happens to the goat? The goat gets away. Isn't that interesting? The goat with all the sin gets away, and then another one dies. You know who dies? The perfect lamb, the spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish, the lamb without any sin. The scapegoat with the sin gets away, just as Jonah got away in the end and received redemption though he did nothing to deserve it. The perfect lamb who did nothing to deserve death takes the death that we all deserve. Are you starting to get it, friends? This is what this story's been pointing us to all along. Not just Jonah, not just ourselves, but the greater atonement, the redemption, the life that would come in the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. I invite the band to come up, and they're going to begin to take us into our closing worship. And as you know, if you've been worshiping with us for a while, we kind of now move into a bit more of a kind of the two song, the extended time of worship here, so that we can truly reflect on God 
and God's word to us and God's calling and leading in our lives. <clears throat> and as the band begins to do this, I kind of wrote out a bunch of statements about Jonah and Jesus and where this story is pointing us to. I don't know if this says it all, but this is like all that I could think of. And I don't want to mess it up, so I'm actually going to start reading it out here for us. And as the band brings us into our season here, our time here for worship, begin to think about the Jonah and you as we read through these statements and see that how it's been pointing us to Jesus all along. You guys ready? You good to go? Oh, they're, all right, they're, they're conferring back there here. So we're going to get the traveling music as we think about these statements. The story of Jonah is ultimately for us a story about a man who loved his God and his nation. But Jonah is about a God who loves all nations and all people, no matter who they are. Religious people, irreligious people, good people, bad people, and all peoples of his creation. Jonah is about a man who receives the word of God and ends up going in the other direction. And yet Jonah is about a God who doesn't let any of us get away that easily. Jonah is about a man who, for very understandable, even legitimate reasons, does not want to obey God's call. But Jonah is about a God who wants evil people to hear the gospel and be given a chance to repent and turn back to him. Jonah is about a man who let his nation and his religion get in the way of his mission. And yet Jonah is ultimately about a God who won't let nation or religion get in the way of his mission to reach the world. Jonah is about a man who gets thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish, and it's about a God who uses storms and fish and sailors and worms and plants and winds to draw people back to himself. Jonah is about a man who begrudgingly obeys God, and Jonah is about a God who uses half-hearted, even less than half-hearted, deeply flawed, imperfect people to fulfill his plans. Jonah is about a man who is very angry at God for being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And Jonah is ultimately about a God who is, in fact, gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in so much love. And the story of Jonah is ultimately about Jesus. Jonah loved his nation, but God, Jesus loves all the nations. Jonah ran from Nineveh. But Jesus ran from heaven to earth. Jonah has a heart full of anger and despair. Jesus has a heart full of love and compassion. Jonah spent three days in a fish. Jesus spent three days in a grave to atone for our sins. Jonah spent 40 days hoping that destruction might come. Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection offering us the hope of redemption. Jonah, in the end, we see, went out and sat on a high place and made himself a little throne and hoped for the destruction of all those who, hate, all those who hated. And at the conclusion of Jesus' ministry, as we will lead into through our celebration of this Easter season, Jesus ultimately went outside of the city and onto a hill where he didn't wish the destruction of others, but took on destruction of himself. He didn't call out revenge on his enemies, but he cried out forgiveness for those who killed him. And Jesus now sits on the high and exalted throne, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, 
and offers each and every one of us grace and compassion. Let us pray and let us continue to worship now our Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story of Jonah. And I thank you so much for what the story has been doing in me. And I pray now that the story will continue to do a work in each and every one of our hearts. That we won't take this story in and of itself, but we will allow it to become a launching point for us to see the Jonah in all of us and to see more clearly the fulfillment of your promises in Jesus, your son. May we be convicted whenever we hear your call and yet want to run in the other direction. May we turn back to you when we feel hatred or prejudice beginning to well up in our lives. May we turn back to you. May we willingly go and share your good news so that others may turn to you and receive the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness offered only through Jesus Christ. And may we continue to turn towards Jesus, working out our salvation through the God who has worked salvation for us. And as we wrap this up now, I just want to go back to that central verse that you've shown so powerfully to me in these past five weeks. Salvation comes from the Lord. Our salvation, our hope, our life has come from you, Lord Jesus. And so we surrender all to you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.